0: have a few questions for my uh, colleagues. My family, that the only thing we have to fear is fear ourselves. Here in this land, we unleash the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than As regulatory battles rage over data privacy and monopoly laws, so we more often think of Silicon Valley and Washington, D.C. as two separate worlds. Yet, nothing could be farther from the truth technologies like silicon chips and the internet were rooted in huge government investment, these federal R&D funds responsible for America's ascendance as a technological and military superpower. Today on Rebuilding Government, I'll be chatting with DJ Patil, an expert on public-private cooperation on technology. He was former chief data scientist of the United States under the Obama admin, and in government, he pioneered national data initiatives across precision medical care, police transparency, and national security. But he's also a trailblazer in the corporate world. DJ is currently the CTO of Devoted Health, a healthcare company serving seniors, and he previously built the first data science team at LinkedIn. Based on his wide-ranging experience, DJ has a real empathy for the challenges that these different sectors face in using technology for social good. Today we chatted about his pathway to public service, what data ethics can learn from medicine, and advice for college students who are seeking a high-impact career. Let's hear from him. Hi, DJ. Welcome to Rebuilding Government. It's so great to have you on.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm excited.
0: Me too. So of course, one of your pretty big achievements and something you dedicated many years to was you were the first chief data scientist of the United States under Obama. So because you had mostly a corporate career beforehand, I'm curious how you ended up in that role. Actually, one of the things
1: people don't always realize is actually I got my start really in more of the public service domain. Uh, after I, I spent a bit of time in academia, really focused as being a researcher and scientist. Uh, after 9-11, I went into public service to, to work on national security issues at the, at the Department of Defense, and so there I was really focused on everything from identification of threats against U.S. interests, uh, as trying to identify and understand how to mitigate threats around bioweapons and the proliferation of bioweapons, as well as building rebuilding Iraq's educational system and so that really gave me my first real dose of public service and so it's actually something that has stayed with me throughout my entire time even working in industry and many of the projects that have worked in industry actually have a very strong tie to public service and in, in a number of different ways so I think they, they kind of they they help inform you and make you better in corporate life in, in uh, more ways than people often realize. Uh, and part of that has been when I had the opportunity to return back into public service, it, it was a real joy. It was not expected uh, that I would go back into public service. But it, it's something that I, I hope that everyone gets a chance to do.
0: For sure. So, um was public service always something that mattered to you when you were coming out of academia? Did you know that's like the pathway you wanted to take? Um, Like, I guess I'm curious if you could tell me more about how your initial interest in working for government, being a public servant, like how did that emerge?
1: Well, the first first part of it for me is I think I've always had a strong tie to public service. And I I think I take the notion of public service uh, as a very broad definition. Uh, I was very fortunate that that I got educated entirely on public support, you know, from undergraduate that was at University of California, San Diego, research that was funded by federal government from not only the Department of Energy, but Department of uh, Department of Defense, and National Science Foundation, and others, uh, and so, and then going to University of Maryland uh, as, as well, and. and So the fact that the public has invested so much in me and my education only feels like the right thing to do is to return on that investment is to provide back to society because that's what society, why society takes those dollars and invests in, in academia. And so my model for how, how do you square up the ledger is, is that the fundamental thing I look at is create more than you take and if i've taken in all these dollars and time and education on behalf of the public i got to give that back and when that opportunity came to serve in national security it was something that i jumped at because i felt that that was one of the ways to focus on it it's also why my research in academia was really focused on weather forecasting it is the belief that if we can improve that you would get disproportionate returns for society. And the same reason why I spent so much time working to really make sure that we had these new paradigms be effective at companies like LinkedIn was because if you have the ability to use a platform to help people get back to work, that is a form of mission driven and creating more value. And one thing that people don't always realize is some of the products we created at LinkedIn actually have a public purpose. So for example, we were building this idea of how could you explore your career? Can people understand choices uh, that they might make and see things that they may not otherwise think of? And the original genesis of that idea of career explorer and finding jobs that you may not realize you're qualified for is watching all my friends come back from Iraq and Afghanistan who were in the military and try to find work in civilian life. And oftentimes I found them making decisions that I considered were subpar because they just didn't know that their skills applied in so many different areas. And that, that to me is, we all have this, this, we live in such a privileged world. What would it look like if we are able to take a portion of our life and give it back to help help make others more successful? And and that that is something I think we all owe society. If fundamentally that is part of the social contract that is provided.
0: Absolutely. I really like the theme of create more than you take. I think a lot of the times we can get caught up in the narratives of being self-made, working really hard, but I feel like it's it's pretty impossible to find anyone who has achieved success without receiving not only the support of their community, but also having benefited from these public systems at some point in their lives.
1: That's right. There, there's a very strong fictitious rationale that people make typically in Silicon Valley that they just did it all on their own. And, and even, you know, people forget about Silicon Valley that a big Silicon Valley didn't create Silicon Valley. It was, is really built on taxpayers' dime. Everything that, in a way to think of it is, is the spark that, that ignited the flame that stays lit, that fuels the forces of innovation. That spark is provided by the federal government. Those dollars came in through federal government. There's also a fair amount of philanthropy that, that, that was used and dollars that came in from philanthropic efforts to to kind of chart new pathways and then the private sector takes off. Uh, But in many cases, like if you take self-driving cars, self-driving cars were really started out as a DARPA project and then people realized like, wow, there's a lot more value in that and that took off. Electric cars. Part of the reason electric car success has been there is because much of that innovation research actually was subsidized and funded by small business grants, as well as incentive functions to try to uh, enable rationale for people to buy electric cars over traditional gasoline and and uh, the internal combustion engine, the ICE cars. And so those, those, those directions, that is what pushes ourselves. And, and we forget about those things, but those have disproportionate impact on our society in a way that, that we don't realize. And I'll just point out another one because it's people think, ah, you can't accomplish much in, uh, in government and public service. The idea that there, you could have a checkbox for organ donation on the driver's license was done by two enterprising public servants who thought, hey, what happens if we actually want to move the needle on organ donation? And where's the place where we could get most of the people to make a choice about being an organ donor? And they realized, like, oh, at the driver's license process. And then then we'll have a notification on the, the card that says you're willing to be an organ donor. That has made life that has been radically life changing for so much of the United States population because two enterprising public servants made it so that that is the power of public service
0: right absolutely so given this like these long standing partnerships between the public and private sectors given this history of civic innovation why do you think that silicon valley has now forgotten a lot of how crucial the government has been in developing its success? I
1: think there's a few reasons. And I don't think it's only Silicon Valley that's at fault. You know, when the Secretary of Defense, Ash Carter, came out to visit the Silicon Valley, it had been the first Secretary of Defense to visit Silicon Valley in something like 30 years, which is astonishing. You know, we've also have parts of the government that are, have been deeply antagonistic to innovation. You see that, in conservative groups around stem cell therapies. Uh you see it. Uh you saw it with the FBI and Jim Comey around encryption and trying to build backdoors. And so you, and then you've also seen it with Silicon Valley taking a very firm line saying we will not work on technologies that will help on national security. And I think of this as we we have created a divide and we are not working to decrease the the divide. So how do we increase that? Well, one, I grew up, when I grew up, I grew up here in Silicon Valley, but I grew up in a very different Silicon Valley. You know, there was Moffat Field. There was people who served in the military. Many of my friends' parents were part of the, they were in the military or, or supported different parts of the national security structure that keep us safe. And so I got to appreciate them in a different way. Most people who grow up now in the United States will not meet somebody who works in the military or has served. And that's just the way our military is structured. We don't have as large of a fighting force as we did during the Vietnam era. uh, And that we have an increased concentration around military bases. So we don't Understand where the other walk of life is coming from, but I wish that both sides could could walk more in each other's shoes. I wish that policymakers could sit with companies to understand what does it look like to actually build good software that provides solutions to the public. I wish that people who are working in Silicon Valley could appreciate how hard people work. To make sure that we can see, sleep soundly at night. I, I wish people could understand when they say just blow up the FDA because it's not approving drugs fast enough, could also understand the history of the FDA, that it was created because people were selling medicines that poison people, and it wasn't against a lot of poison people and medicines. And so people decided that we need a system where we can trust our medicines. We don't question. When we don't feel good after taking a medication, could the medication have been false? We we just trust it because we know our, our, our supply chain is so rigorous uh, and we need to be able to recognize the value of these institutions and what happens when you erode it uh, and, and the impact it really has that is material.
0: Right, I I feel like a lot of these things that you're talking about, Um, Not all of them, but are rooted in a deeper mistrust between the public and uh, between the public and federal government, Uh, for example, with some of the reluctance of some technologists in Silicon Valley to work on military projects. I feel like it would come from an understanding of what those projects are and why the government needs them, but perhaps Uh, People don't agree with the goals of like what the military is doing. They are worried about misuse by some of the less transparent parts of the government. And as a result of that, they don't want to work on things like Project Maven or other military projects. Um, how, How do you approach that kind of distrust?
1: So the first part is government is defined by those that show up. And what we need in the, the federal government, particularly around these, these questions of how is this technology going to be utilized? We need really strong technologists in those roles. You know, one of the roles of the chief data scientist isn't just about championing things of how data is going to be used. It's about taking a stand of how data should not be used and saying like, that is not an okay use of data. That is not acceptable. And it's why the role is so critical. You, part of government also requires really strong oversight. And so Congress needs better technologists in roles to help them. One of the things that was unfortunately destroyed in the, the 90s was this organization called the Office of Technology Assessment, OTA. And that office's job was to provide you know, unbiased, nonpartisan input to Congress about the impact of technology and choices. And Congress unfortunately got rid of that. And ever since it's been, it doesn't have access to to the right type of people to help them. So we need to increase that. The second is, which your point is very fair, is that people have to have understand context so that we can do things better. And no one wants to see their technology be weaponized against their beliefs, and so we we need to ensure that's the case. And we we need to make sure that, that happens. And the only way to have that that happen is create a much stronger bridge where we're actually kind of living in both worlds simultaneously. Because we can't just have this approach where Silicon Valley says build me or government says build me a widget, and we say. Sir, yes, sir, and just do it. That's not, that's also not okay. We, there, there's a firm version of, which is we should fundamentally asking ourselves in every single thing we do, how do we ensure this technology works for us, not against us? And that includes in government contracts and, and what are the safeguards that are there? And we should ask and ensure that the policymakers are putting those safeguards in place equally so.
0: Could you perhaps give an example of during your work as chief data scientist, um, a time when you did uh, create a stipulation or make a recommendation about how data should not be used?
1: Sure, boy, there's so many. You know, <laughs> wh- one of the, 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 the easiest is that there are a lot of federal data sets that people wanna combine. Uh, uh, and, and there's lots of good reasons. And more often than not it's not about like hey that shouldn't be used but it's about how do you ensure there are safeguards that are in place so a version of this was in building what's called the precision medicine initiative which is the idea is to create the largest repository of medical data uh, genomic as well as uh, electronic medical records to understand the basis of new diseases and and in that you have to make sure that, well, people are going to contribute their data. How do you make sure that it's going to be not only safe, but there's adequate privacy measures? And so there are many, many proposals that people had that you could say are just not acceptable or have too much risk. And so what we really came up with through that process was an iterative approach to actually get to the right answer, or create a framework, what you might call for policy is How do you actually create guardrails but create a process where it allows people to try out different things in small ways before you get to the big version? This is what we mean when we say, well, prototype for 1x, build for 10x, and then engineer for 100x. The goal fundamentally is about hey, how do we try this before we actually know we're going to implement this in ways? And part of this is people. There's a couple things that that I think it's very easy to say, slow down, go slower. Don't don't like let's take our time to figure stuff out. Tell that to someone with stage four cancer who has, you know, no, like there's no recourse. Tell that to a family member who has, you know, a child or somebody who, who has a rare disease. Tell that to somebody who has stage four cancer or tell it to some parent who has a child with a rare disease where they say that child is one of N and the system has no idea how to take care of that person. Like they've never seen anyone like it. No, those people are willing to put their data out there just so in the hopes that it'll get used. And we have to also be working for them uh, and and hope that there's, we can find cures in their lifetime because they're, they're on a fixed timeline. Uh, and we also have to ensure that we're not going to create the next, next Tuskegee or Henrietta Lacks type, type of situation. So we have to fundamentally be trying to find ways to allow people to test and do it in safeguard. The same thing is true for autonomous vehicles. How do we create safeguards where people actually are able to try things but not get ourselves locked in a way that doesn't enable innovation to take place? And that's a fine line. It's a very not, It's a, it, what you try to do is evolve your thinking and iterate your your approach every day by getting smarter and getting better clarity about what does the public need and figuring out the trade-offs.
0: Right. Um, so given that there's um, these fields like medicine that have long histories of ethics and different kinds of guidelines for people who practice like the Hippocratic Oath. What do you think that data ethics can learn from these other fields of applied ethics like bioethics or medicine?
1: Well, the first part is to ask to learn the history. And, you know, one of the things I try to really encourage everyone to do, especially who are in technology related areas, is make sure you've gotten a fair dose of the liberal arts. It's one of the most the glaring gaps in our educational process right now is that we have filled up, there's so many things to learn, we lose the ability to, to teach the liberal arts nowadays. And the liberal arts are critical for understanding these things. And if you look at the history of where bioethics really comes from, you know, one of the most egregious places is looking at World War II and the Nazis. And when you look at that situation, you kind of realize, well, what came out of it? Well, there was a Nuremberg trials, which led to the Nuremberg Code, also the Geneva Convention, and out of that were the assessment of what are human values. And these collectively together, you know, as they move forward, we realized that there were gaps and there were flaws. There was a prisoner experiment done at Stanford. There was Milgram's, and the rest of Milgram's work in these areas. There was Tuskegee, Henrietta Lacks, and other gaps where these things broke down. But they all came back to how did we break down in understanding human value? And when you look at that, you realize, ah, that's how bioethics kind of kept moving forward. Because a Hippocratic Oath is nice, and it's a really strong thing that gets sets you know, on the right direction, but it is not enforceable. Too many doctors are allowed to practice and can cause harm before they're removed from the system. Same as a legal field. So the system doesn't self-police at the rate you want. If you added increased transparency of data, you would start to see some of those issues. So what do we take away from the data side is we said, well, what do we want? Like, How do we make sure we value the the these human values, how do we really make sure we're not gonna end up creating another situation like uh, something we've seen with the Nazis, with different forms of technology. And that's, that's really where we came up with the five C's, this idea of first you need to really take care of consent. Are you really empowering people to say yes and no? How do you provide clarity around that consent? Clarity, what people are gonna do with that data. Transparency along with that clarity. How do you have consistency? Like, are we still using the data in the way people are thinking about it? Are we still consistent with the way society views this, if it's longer term things, maybe on the decade cycle? And what are consequences look like if it doesn't work right? How do we make sure that there's a necessary, like deal with harm and other issues that may happen to a population? Uh, and this is more than just brief, because what, as we get to genomic data, you don't get that data back. So we got to think through those aspects and ask ourselves, how do we get a lot better about thinking about what these things are? And that includes, what, how do we provide safeguards? And so one of the things that we've suggested is, we think when you're building products, well, first, if you're at, you know, if you're at a college and taking anything around technology, you've got to have ethics training. And it can't be just some ethics class, it should be integrated into your curriculum. If you're learning about databases, you also gotta learn about how people are gonna attack your database to try to break it. So the auto grading program should try to, try to do different forms of attack to see if you've thought about it, uh, and, or at least help you learn about it. And then the other part of this is like, as you get to companies, You know, every student should be asking the companies they interview with how do they handle ethical issues. And if you interview with me at Devoted Health, you will get an interview question about on an ethics topic because that is part of cultural fit. Ethics is part of cultural fit. Uh, And then the other thing is like, well, what about dissent channels? If you have a problem with a company, you have dissent channels in the biomedical space. Maybe we need a descent channel or whistleblower type protections in the technology space. Those, those set of things are what we're going to need to think through next.
0: I really like that. I know a lot of students at Stanford are currently reckoning with, I feel like I want to be a mission-driven technologist. I don't want to be in the next scandal. How do I approach my career wanting to learn, but also um, understanding that which kinds of places are going to respect the values that i believe in Um, so related to that right now um, i saw a statistic that 80 percent of graduate level ai talent works for either facebook or google Um, do you think that it's a problem that so many people students are going into these large private sector companies and how how would you give advice to someone who is trying to figure out The best channel to make their impact, whether that's in government, whether that's at a startup, whether that's at a large technology company?
1: It's a great question. So the first part of this, I think, is we have to ask, why do people go to some of these places? And one thing that's there that I've heard consistently from students is it's about pay. And part of what's behind the pay is that Students are under tremendous financial pressure because of student loans and They're in so much debt that they're looking for a way out and this is not unlike when I was a student that so many people went to Wall Street uh, And that in the hedge funds and that was because they had so much student debt And this was a way for them to get out of out of that problem and they hope that they get out of it quick so they can work on things that are more mission driven. The problem is once you kind of start down that route, it's hard to kind of get out because you start to create a path of career and you start marching along that that direction. And so the first part I think we haven't done and we have done a poor job of setting up students who are graduating is on student debt. Uh, and I would like to and of hope that there will be increased focus on reform. And I, I personally am convinced that if there's one thing that we can do to set the generation up for, for being more empowered, being in control of their destiny and unlocking a you know, new wave of innovation, it's fundamentally addressing debt, student debt. And that is, there are many different solutions of policy solutions out there. But I think broadly speaking, taking this on is critical. The second is, yeah and then the second part of this is uh I think that there's a real challenge because the problem of such concentration of people in AI means that there're certain sectors that don't benefit. You know, I I think about wow, how great would it be if people were working with AI or other type solutions that we're going to help empower people in places that they don't often think of, like, could we find better ways to feed people? Is there ways that we can make sure to educate people in their ways? What would it look like if we took AI instead of trying to help people click on more ads or try to find ways to, to, you know, just increase the top line of of a small number of companies but really powered the most pressing problems of society. What, what would that look like? And because we have problems like climate change and we have fundamental problems of economic inequality and those are problems that have to be tackled. And so I look at those and I wonder what, what could we do there? What, what could we do on disaster recovery? We've seen like, you know, this. This one student who was working on data science kind of programs it was looking after hurricane and was using AI to identify where all the bridges were washed out. And I think about, wow, how great would it be to have those kind of AI solutions at the push of a button so that first responders could do their jobs? Could we understand where, you know, places like we've seen in the UK where we've had these terrible fires? Uh, uh, uh you know in high density places could we deploy fire inspectors to identify places that are more likely to be taking advantage of people uh we saw this in oakland too and we've seen this new york city had the programs done like this that have done phenomenally well so what else could we do uh, in, in that way and so i hope that people will look for places where they can Utilize their skills that have a disproportionate impact. The thing that I see students make the greatest mistake on is they more, they, the first job they optimize for what I would call learning or, or for salary or title or, or, or look, you know, sort of a label that says this, this is the hoodie you get rather than optimizing for, for learning. And what I would tell people is in your first job, your goal should be to learn the most you possibly can within a very concentrated period of time. It, it, because it's about, it's about how, much can you, how much experience and wisdom can you gain, <clears throat> and that allows you to play for the next job and the next portion of your career. And so the, the version I tell people is like, a normal job you're working for every one year is, one year. So you take that as a the baseline. There's so some jobs that are, you know, for every one year of, 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 of real life, it's three years of learning relative to other jobs. So other jobs, maybe it's half a, a year because it's just, you know, there's not much going on. Some jobs are at 10x. A 10x job is like at the White House where you're physically not going to be able to, to keep that rate up. Um, Some startups, some places, are 10x because it's just on a rocket ship trajectory. Uh, And there's other places where it's somewhere in between. Every student should optimize between 3x and 7x. And what you're optimizing for is mentors and people who will teach you. And if you're getting that learning, wherever you're getting that learning, optimize for that so that you can then be in control of your destiny as you move forward.
0: That's really great advice. Um, That reminds me of actually, I don't know if you've seen it, but there's a proposal from some students uh, uh, as a part of Coding It Forward to create like a grant program that does loan forgiveness for technologists who enter public sector careers, um, sort of similar to the ones for doctors and for lawyers who do that kind of thing. Um, It seems to get at the two categories that you were talking about.
1: I think it's fantastic. Uh, And I would love You know, there there is a grant forgiveness program also in the federal government to run by the Department of Education. Uh, it's been highly mismanaged. And so it's very difficult for people who've gone into teaching or other professions. Uh, and it is not, you know, people are kind of stuck and the government hasn't forgiven their loans. Part of this is corporations that are manage these programs haven't had the necessary oversight to really ensure that they're uh that they're managed and doing the job that they in, in compliance with the law. So I, I think we need to do more of that. And I would love to see, you know, versions of this are, are manifold that including that if you go and take a sabbatical from a company, you can go into the federal government for a period of time and hold on to your equity or, you know, not face consequences that you're going to be disproportionately economically set back let's let's make those and and vice versa like we need people in the public service to be able to work or spend some time in companies to, to to be able to take back those ideas we need to make that two way street more of that will benefit all of us for sure
0: so usually as we get close to the end of our time i ask each guest a few lightning round questions uh just like really quick one sentence answers um so first of all what's the your favorite book that you've read lately?
1: Oh, The Power. The Power. Mm-hmm. I think it's a great assessment on what happens if you when power dynamics are shifted and particularly uh gender dynamics.
0: Mm-hmm. Who's someone who you really admire?
1: Wow. Well, I think I'd probably go with President Obama. But there's so many. I've been so fortunate to to work with so many great people from Secretary of Defense Ash Carter, Megan Smith, Valerie Jarrett, Michelle Obama. Uh, they're just so many people have taught me incredible things.
0: Great. And finally, if you could state it in one sentence, what would your vision for government be in 100 years?
1: Government by the people for the people.
0: Perfect. Well, thank you so much, DJ, for coming on the podcast. Um, really great advice for people, and I really enjoyed talking to
1: you. My pleasure. Thank you. Hey,
0: this is Jasmine again. If you want to learn more about what people are doing to rebuild government, please hit like and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Go to rebuildinggovernment.com, or tweet us at Rebuilding Government. If you care what I have to say, my Twitter is at Jasmine WSN. I'm always looking for friends and feedback. This podcast is part of the Tuskegee Media Network. You can check out other shows about the world's most impactful and interesting people at tuskeymedia.com And finally, a big thank you to Unit Innovations for sponsoring us. Unit provides technology solutions to governments in order to progress our largest institutions and society. Thank you for listening, everyone. I'll see you next time.